and turning your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Proverbs 14. As I mentioned earlier, during the communion time, you can be looking at Matthew 26 and 27. Proverbs 14 will begin in your Bible tonight, and I want you to notice a specific text that is so familiar that a lot of Christians have almost sort of accidentally committed it to memory. Verse 12 says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Now, some of you may be thinking, you know, Pastor, I have memorized that verse. I just didn't know that it was Proverbs 14, 12. Well, maybe it's not this verse. Maybe what you memorized was Proverbs 16, verse 25. Turn ahead a page and notice what it says there. There is a way, chapter 16, verse 25, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. Same truth, repeated by God, obviously, and always for emphasis. And of course, the theme of this verse is found in the word way, or ways. It's repeated twice in both of these texts. There are the ways of the Lord contrasted with the ways of man. In the book of Isaiah, there's an often misunderstood text about the ways of God, once again, contrasted versus the ways of man. You'll notice on the screen, Isaiah 55 and verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. By the way, that is another verse that a lot of Christians almost accidentally memorize and are very familiar with. But again, they may not be familiar with the specific application of the word way or ways in this text. You see, beloved, it's not simply that all God's ways are higher than all of man's ways, though that is true. It is rather that God's ways about salvation are higher than man's ways about salvation. That's specifically what this text is talking about. God's way to heaven is way higher. His thoughts about how sinners can ever get there are much higher than man's thoughts about it. And how is that so? Well, specifically in three different areas. Number one, God's forgiveness is higher than our forgiveness. God's thoughts, God's ideas, God's way of forgiveness is higher than ours. Remind you that Isaiah started this truth with the word for. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. There's a reason why that is there, and that's because the verses before this declaration are critical. Here's what it says in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For... My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, folks, God is saying that when it comes to forgiveness and pardon and mercy, our thoughts on the matter do not equal God's thoughts on the matter. When it comes to salvation, His ways are higher than our ways. So that, you know... When you talk about the issue regarding sin, for example, whatever it is that we think about forgiveness, whatever it is that the depth, the, the magnanimity of God's grace towards us, of forgiveness, God's thoughts are 
infinitely higher than our thoughts. Here's the language. He will have mercy. He will abundantly pardon. Back in our text in Proverbs 16, you'll notice what it says. Verse 6, by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. How is iniquity purged? By God's mercy, by God's truth. Now, do you know what the Hebrew word for purged is? It's Yom Kippur. That's the Hebrew word there. That means atoned for. It means to cancel. And how is our sin canceled? Not by our deeds. Not by our good works, but verse 6, by His mercy. Communion is a time to remember. And above all else, it is a time to remember the cost, the price of this forgiveness, this mercy. We're going to discuss these other things in a moment. But to begin the communion service, I'm going to ask Brother Mike, if he would to stand, he's going to pray for God's blessing upon the bread, and then we will pass it out. Brother Mike. And amen. Again, Matthew 26, 27. Start anywhere in those texts and just read them and meditate on them as we pass out the bread. Today, as you know, most of you know, is the first Sunday of August. And of course, August has become back to school month. Public schools go back on the 10th. King's Academy goes back on the 10th. Jupiter Christian starts on the 9th. Homeschoolers started back in June, I think most of them. <laughs> and of course, all of the back to school talk is a reminder of the greatest joy, air quotes, of school, which are finals or final exams. Any kind of tests, honestly. There are placement tests that will be coming up for some of you early on, midterm exams, evaluation exams, ACTs. Some of you may remember the old FCATs that they did away with. It stood for Florida children are tortured, they used to say. But all these exams at school. And of course, the most feared part, the most important part of any exam is the final exam. The final exam, in addition to carrying, you know, the most weight, also typically asks the most important questions. Questions you must know the answer to in the, quote, final analysis so that in a few months from now, students will try to memorize and they'll seek to know and answer by cramming and studying and pulling all-nighters and using Spark Notes or Cliff Notes or cheating with ChatGPT and things like that. Answers to final exams are of great value. There's no greater answer. We have a final exam coming up. There's no greater answer to the single greatest final exam in the universe than the answer to the question that Job asked in the oldest book of the Bible. How then, Job said, how can man be justified with God? That's the question. And the answer, the only answer, is one word, forgiveness. And again, not our definition of forgiveness and redemption, 
not our perception of what forgiveness is. Our view of forgiveness is so much lower, eternally lower, so much lower than God's forgiveness. Let me tell you why. Ephesians 1, 7, you're familiar with, right? It says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, here it is, according to the riches of his grace. Note that this forgiveness, beloved, is based upon his blood and his mercy according to the riches of his grace. Forgiveness is not, it is not according to the level of our remorse, how much we moaned or cried or wept. It's not according to the strength of our resolve or the degree of our spirituality. It is forgiveness according to the riches of his grace. And beloved, that is higher than our thoughts. That is higher than our ways. The word we used earlier, we noted, is purged. None of us has the power to purge our sins or anybody's sins. None of us has the power to pardon. So that you see, our level and understanding of forgiveness is way down here in comparison to God himself. I remember a man, one of our men said to me years ago, he said, Pastor, I've forgiven that man, but he better keep his distance from me. I thought, wow, what kind of forgiveness is that? I'm glad our God isn't like that at all. How can we comprehend God's forgiveness when we cannot pardon, when we cannot forget the wrong that's been done? Other people's sins against us and their failures are always stuck in our carnal minds. But let me tell you what God says in Hebrews 8.12. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. You see, beloved, this piece of unleavened bread testifies that his sacrifice, not ours, his gift, not ours, is what makes his forgiveness higher than ours. I'm going to ask for a salvation testimony. Brother Barry Sr., where are you at? Barry Rodden Sr., over here. He's going to stand and give a salvation testimony, if you would, buddy. It was um, in the beginning of 1982. I'd been married five years with Cheryl and had Barry and Marissa, their kids. And, um, well, I, the Lord put on my heart that I should go to church. <clears throat> my dad, he used to send me to church. He told me to go to church. He didn't go to church. And um, Cheryl went to the Catholic Church. So we said, well, how, where are we going to go to church? Because she wouldn't have anything to do with Methodism. Wouldn't have anything to do with Catholics. So we went to the Baptist Church. Went to a little Southern Baptist Church in Rivera Beach. And there after you know, a few weeks, maybe a couple months, we were sitting in the, up front. And the um, you know, Lord, I don't remember the message the pastor had. The Lord put on my heart that day that, that he died for me, personally. He made it personal for me. And uh, the pastor, he gave an invitation. I didn't go to the altar. I didn't go up. And then shortly after that, nobody came up. But shortly after that, several were being baptized that day. And, and as we were walking up to the uh, baptistry, I was sitting there crying, thinking how the Lord died for me. And I looked over to Cheryl, and I looked at her, and I said, why are you crying? And she said, she said, because I just asked the Lord to save me. And so we both got saved the same day. And uh, 
we didn't, you know, we had, we had head knowledge of Jesus. You know, we knew the Bible uh, stories from Sunday school and Christmas and those things, but we didn't have any, you know, doctrine. But I knew enough. We got up, and I chased down the pastor. We just went into the baptistry and chased him down. They said, what, what are you doing in here? And we said, well, and my brother was, you know, my brother John, he was up there helping. But we said, well, we just asked Jesus to save us right there in our pew. And, oh, that's great, that's great. And I said, uh, well, what about getting baptized? And they, he said, well, we don't have more robes. And I said, well, is that in the Bible? He said, no. So, and God bless my wife, right, in her, in her Sunday dress. And we went right in the water the same day we got saved, we got baptized. And um, the Lord changed us that day. He, he saved us, made us whole. We didn't, um, we shortly after that moved to Jupiter. And... Um, we weren't really involved in that church. There was a little uh, ad came out in the Jupiter Courier that this new preacher coming to Jupiter. So I shared it with my brother, John. You might know him, but I said, you might want to go to that Baptist church instead. So he, he came to Beacon, and he come over and says, hey, the pastor wants to meet you. And I said, well, I, I know what that means. He's going to come over and say, well, are you going to church? No. So I said, I'll short circuit this whole thing, because I, I, I had enough sense to do that. I'll just go to church, say hi, and, and leave, and that'll be that. So we, we, we came here on Center Street, and the pastor preached a message on uh, return by winter, or return before winter, I should say, from Second Timothy. And the Lord just struck me in the heart. And, and I said, you know, this is not where I want to be. This is where I need to be. And uh, the Lord blessed us being in this church now for almost 37 years and uh, we got to raise our family here the Lord saved us uh, gave us a place he gave us a church and uh, family everything I have I owe to him and uh, that's my testimony amen amen everything we have we owe to him everything and it begins with salvation and the cost of that salvation if you were reading in Matthew now, perhaps you got to the part where they beat the Lord Jesus and they put a crown of thorns on his head. You know, I hit my leg the other day in the shin right in the hardest part, and the pain was so bad. I remember and had tears in my eyes just a couple days ago, and it was so bad. And I was just thinking about pain for a while, and some of you in this room have some chronic pain. And, and I thought to myself, you know, the Lord Jesus willingly came in a physical form in a human body so that he could suffer. Physically, Yes but in every possible way in his body. He took our sins, he took our suffering, he took our pain, and he did it because of his great mercy. And so Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. Father in heaven, how grateful tonight. We have a salvation testimony. It's different in some ways. And Brother Barry's and others, the person next to us or behind us, but it is exactly the same when it comes to how we got saved and why we're saved. Thank you for sending your son, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Thank you. And Lord Jesus, thank you, as it says in Hebrews, that you were pleased to come and to give yourself for our sins and to do it for your glory and for all of eternity. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. At that last supper, which was a Passover meal, of course, not only was there unleavened bread there, but there was the fruit of the vine in the cup, as it says. And the Lord Jesus took that, and in that Passover moment, 
He was the lamb, the Passover lamb. He reminded his disciples that he would give his blood, he would shed his blood. Now, he was innocent, unlike any of us, never sinned, perfect, sinless life, and yet he would shed his blood for our sins. How, how many thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lambs and oxen were slain, and the tediousness of it, and the burden of it that was on Israel for all of those centuries, as a picture that the Lamb of God would come. I'm going to ask Brother Chris Hammond if he'd stand and ask God's blessing upon the juice, and then we'll pass that out. Brother Chris, please. Continue reading there in the Gospel of Matthew, if you would, and we will pass out the juice. The first thing that we noted together about man's way, there is a way that seemeth right unto man, the end thereof of the ways of death. Man's way versus God's way, in that God's way is so much higher and his thoughts are so much higher regarding salvation, is that we said his forgiveness is higher. The second thing we have to consider is the fact that his free, F-R-E-E, is also higher. Which is to say, when God says something is free, it's actually free. You know, the My Pillow guy, he's like every other commercial that's ever been. He gives away something for free. He says, if you call now and you order one of My Pillows, when you do, I will give you a second pillow absolutely free. I don't think he knows what the word absolutely means or free because you have to buy one. And it's obviously overpriced so that they can afford to give you another one that you also paid for. When God says free in his word, from our vantage point, what he means is free. Revelation 21, 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life. What's the next word? Freely. You know, man looks at that and he says, I, 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 there's no way. How in the world can it be that eternal life, the greatest thing in all of the universe, how can it be free, as it says in this text, to whosoever will? How can it be free to sinners? How can it be free, offered freely to a man who is a murderer or a thief or a liar? You have to earn it. Don't you have to be worthy of it? Shouldn't you at least somehow before that deserve it? And man's conclusion, as evidenced by the broad road to destruction, a man's way leads to death, is yes, you do. Man's conclusion is it can't possibly be free. Salvation simply cannot be a gift, a free gift. But again... What does God say? Romans 5.16, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. That's who we are. We're condemned. Even so, by the righteousness of one, Jesus, the free gift came unto justification of eternal life. Romans 3.24, Being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Revelation 21.6, And he said unto me, It is done. 
I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life. Different verse, same word, freely. Salvation and eternal life for sinners is free, but it's not cheap. It's not cheap at all. It happens to be the single costliest thing in all of the universe, which is why the Lord instituted communion, the supper. It costs God, his only begotten son. The blood of our Lord Jesus paid for it. You don't pay for it. You could never pay for it. I could never pay for it. You don't have enough righteousness, goodness, virtue, holiness to pay for even a glimpse into God's eternal heaven. If it's not free... Tell me something. How did that thief on the cross ever obtain it? What did that sinner and that criminal have to give in the last minutes of his life to a holy God? What righteous act, what offering, what sacrament, what good work or good deed did that man ever do to pay, by the way, for a lifetime of sin and evil? After all, his hands are nailed to a cross. How convenient that now in his last moments on earth when he's lived his life of sin, how convenient now to confess and ask for mercy. Now he wants to think about eternal things and how presumptuous that now in these final moments he asks Christ to remember him when Jesus goes back to the Father. Well, all I know is Jesus said today. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise for eternity. Pastor Blake, it's not fair. In fact, some people might accuse God. They might say, Jesus, you said earlier in the Gospels that many in the judgment would call you who call you Lord and many that did wonderful works in your name and many who cast out demons and preached in your name and many, you said, would nevertheless still be lost. No paradise, no forgiveness, no mercy. But this man, this man who's a criminal, a vile man in one prayer, obtains eternal life. It's not fair. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man. God's answer to that, as recorded in his word, is that he doesn't give to sinners an offer of fairness. He gave us an offer of mercy. And all of those people to whom Jesus will one day say, depart from me, I never knew you, not I knew you once and you left it, I never knew you. Those are the very people, that's the very crowd that preaches the false message that it can't be free. That you have to cast out demons and do this and be baptized and do a sacrament. You have freely accepted that gift. We heard Barry Sr.'s testimony. I'm thankful that the Roddens are here. I want to hear Barry Jr.'s testimony. Anything the Lord lays on your heart, Brother Barry, God bless you. So, my dad was at the New York Baptist Church. I remember, I don't have a vivid memory of my childhood, but I do remember specifically hearing a message at church one morning, or in the evening, the evening, possibly. I remember going home and praying my mother as she was saying specifically that night. Later, I, I do remember um, my parents wanted to be Baptist, and we go on and shortly after passing the visit us and talking to me. I think about the legacy of the decision to come to me. Like my dad just mentioned that decision. He said, no, we're not going to visit or choose another church. Well, the legacy that carried over from there, we came here when I was eight years old. I think my closest friends, I've been my closest friends for 40 years. Um, I've been my 
Amen. We love the Roddens, and uh, I've missed them. You know, they did meet here at the church. They got saved here, and uh, when Michelle and the family came, she was a little teenage girl and just full of energy, and then um, got married here in the church, and then they left, and I'm so sorry for that. God bless them. (laughs) What a wonderful family, and, you know, he, he mentioned the heritage. Everything that earlier his dad said, everything that we have, all that we have, all that we are, is because of the Lord, because of his salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. You know, Charles Wesley was one of the most wonderful, prolific hymn writers in all of history. He wrote, arguably, the greatest resurrection hymn ever written, Christ the Lord is Risen Today, plus, arguably, the greatest Christmas hymn ever written, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He wrote one of the greatest praise hymns, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. He also wrote one of the greatest devotional hymns, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. He also wrote one of the greatest dedication choruses ever, A Charge to Keep. The first verse says, A charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, who gave his son my soul to save and fit it for the sky. Man, that's good stuff. And then, of course, he also wrote what is arguably the greatest salvation hymn ever. What's interesting about that particular hymn is that it breaks one of the great basic rules of grammar, but it does so by design. It begins with the word and. Now, if you're going to write a, a hymn, sit down and write a hymn, how many of you would sit down and the very first word of the first line of that hymn would be a conjunction? And can it be that I should gain? It's as if the hymn begins in the middle of some thought process. And you know, that's exactly right. Picture, if you would, Mr. Wesley sitting on the side of a hill at night, looking at the stars, pondering life and eternity and the fact that he he got saved. And then asking the question, and can it be? And can it be? And the chorus says, amazing love, how can it be? How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Now, wait a minute. Charles Wesley did not get saved until he was 31 years of age. As the brother of John Wesley, the son of Susanna Wesley, and of course Samuel, his dad was a pastor, he had already joined the Holy Club at Oxford with George Whitfield. He had already served as chaplain of the fort there at Simon's Island in Georgia. He had already written pamphlets on theology, And he was appointed the Secretary of Indian Affairs in the Georgia colony. Everybody thought he was saved, except for himself. Charles Wesley could not come to grips through his life with the simple truth of God's grace and God's mercy. Until one day, sailing back to England, he ended up in the home of John Bray. And there, falling under conviction, recognizing that all these things that he had been doing All of these labors to try to earn favor with God were not enough. There, he accepted Christ. He accepted the way of God, not the way of man. And so, there in that house, he called upon the Lord and he wrote this in his journal. The Spirit of God chased away the darkness of my unbelief. You're saved 
by faith. None of Charles's good works bought his salvation. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Which brings me very quickly to the final truth. His forgiveness is higher. His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher. His forgiveness is higher. His free is higher. But also number three, his forever. His forever is higher than ours. In other words, when God says forever, unlike us, he actually means forever. I've done weddings here. I've done weddings on Center Street, and I've seen couples say, forever, I'll love you forever. It's not really necessarily forever in those cases. When God says eternal, he means eternal. When he says everlasting, he means everlasting. In Psalm 103, I want you to look at it on the screen. It says these words, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. You know, the Holy Spirit did not tell David to write down as far as the north is from the south. He didn't say that. Those two points obviously are measurable. David had never seen the two poles, far as we know, but God had. And the distance between the North Pole and the South Pole, those are measurable, is 12,416 miles as a crow flies. If you could go through the middle of the earth, it's 7,902 miles, but it's still measurable. God doesn't say as far as the North is from the South. That's what man might say. The Bible says he's removed our, try to find the East Pole for me and keep looking, and the West Pole. He removes our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. He says, as high as the heaven is high above the earth, infinity, so great is his mercy. How long does that mercy last? In that same chapter, just a few verses later, it says, the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. But pastor, I don't agree. I don't agree with that because I can't understand that. Our good deeds are not forever. Our dedication isn't always and commitment isn't guaranteed. It's not perfect. How can his salvation be forever? That's the thing. We're not God and God makes the rules. It's his plan of salvation. You may remember the old show Beverly Hillbillies. Some of those of you who are old like me. Jed finds out that he owns a golf course. You know, he owns a lot of stuff he didn't realize he owned. He finds out, and so Jethro takes up the game. And he takes his Hollywood friends out to play the game, and it's ridiculous if you've seen it. He's horrible at golf. His outfit is unbelievable, obviously. And he says in that thick accent, he said, Hey, y'all, this is Jethro. The great thing about owning your own golf course is that I get to decide what par is on every hole. This here hole is a par 24, and yesterday I made a birdie. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you that's exactly what religion is? This is what religion tries to do, decide what par is. But I'm telling you, God owns the golf course. He's already decided what par is. He's already made the rules. And just because his ways and his thoughts are higher than ours, just because we can't comprehend or understand them, 
Just because we can't wrap our minds around how it could be forever, it doesn't change the fact that it is so. And can it be? Anytime someone is wrong on one doctrine, you can be sure they're going to be wrong on another doctrine. And if someone says it can't be free, pretty soon they'll say it can't be forever. It can't be, they say. That once you accept God's offer of mercy, that this gift of salvation is yours. Every time and any time that God speaks about your salvation in his word, you'll notice it's always forever. It's called eternal life. It's called everlasting life. Jesus said that Christians will never perish, never thirst, never hunger, never die. Never, Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. In John 4, Jesus told the woman at the well, if you drink of this water, you will never thirst. He said, if you knew the gift of God, the gift of God, the water of everlasting life is free and it is forever. And if I don't understand that, and if you don't understand that, it's because our ways are not his ways and our thoughts are not his thoughts. And far beloved from our understanding his ways and figuring him out, what God wants us to do is believe him. Trust his word when he says the gift of God is eternal life. It shouldn't be hard to believe, honestly, when you just stop for a moment and realize what it costs. That's what this is. When you stop for a moment and realize that God sent his son who shed his blood for our sins, the innocent pure blood of Christ, then you can begin to comprehend how God's mercy can be as high as the heavens. The Lord Jesus said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Lord Jesus, we are reminded tonight that when you passed out that cup of wine to your disciples, And that when they took that as a reminder that you would be shedding your blood and you said, do it as oft as you will in remembrance. We're reminded that you said that you will not drink it again with your people until you drink it anew in the kingdom. And as we taste that sweet fruit of the vine tonight, it is a reminder that this is also a time of joy because it's a promise that one day we will be with you in the kingdom those who have truly accepted and trusted Christ as Savior, that we will be there, and that of the increase of your kingdom, there shall be no end. We praise you. We thank you for your blood, for your broken body, for your mercy, for your grace, for redemption and salvation. In Jesus' precious name, amen.